Well, good morning, everyone. What a great Sunday. What a great Palm Sunday. Child dedication, baptism, some of my favorite things. Um, if I have not met you before, my name is Kristen, and I am on the leadership team here at Novation Church. And many of you probably already know this, but my husband Joel and I have four kids, and two of them are teenagers, and two of them are right on the cusp of becoming teenagers. So we're like firmly entrenched in teenage territory. And I have to tell you, I love raising teenagers. I think this might be my favorite stage of parenting. I love teenagers. I love their friends. I think they are just ridiculously funny. They're smart. They're passionate. They're figuring out where they fit into the world. And I love it. But also, teenagers make me feel old, like really old. My kids, sometimes, they'll have their friends over. And they're hanging out, and they're talking, and I'm listening. And it's like a foreign language. Like, they say things, phrases, and words that I, I like really don't know what it means. I have no concept of what it means. So my kids, they've been, they've been schooling me in teenage lingo lately. So I thought this morning, we're going to start with a vocab lesson. Teenage lingo vocab lesson. So this is your, your if you have kids that aren't quite teens yet, you're going to be a step ahead. Actually, by the time your kids get there, this lingo will have moved on and you'll have to learn a whole new set of teen lingo, but nonetheless. All right, your first vocab word this morning is bussin'. Bussin', it's bussin'. It's not a school bus, it, this is a compliment. If I put a meal in front of my kids and they're like, mom, this pasta is bussin'. That means like, it's really good, like I've done well. So that's a compliment. But if I put a meal in front of them and they kind of look and say, mm, this is sus. This is pretty sus, mom. That is not a compliment. That means like it's suspect, it's suspicion. A person can be sus, a situation, and the food I put in front of them can be a little bit sus. This is a fun one, vocab word number three. This is a, more of a phrase, cap or no cap. I'm not talking about a hat. Let me give you a little context here. This is, the, this is how I heard this term used by one of my kids first. You know how teenagers leave dishes everywhere? Like if you run out of dishes, you just go to your teenager's room and you find all your dishes that, that should be in the cabinet. So this is a problem in my house. And I'm, not to call you out, Bryson, but my son Bryson <laughs> is the worst at this. <laughs> So he has a snack, I'm in the kitchen, he has a snack and he disappears and I turn around and there's like plates and cups and crumbs and you know, all the leftovers of his snack. And so I call up the stairs, I'm like, Bryson, you need to come down here. Did you leave out your dirty dishes from your snack? And he yells down the stairs, Ma, it wasn't me, no cap, no cap. It means no lie. Who would, who would have known? No cap means no lie. Cap, on the other hand, means lie. So there you go, you can use that. Okay, last vocab word, last vocab word. Now I'm still working on the proper use of this one. My daughter Audrey has been trying to help me figure it out and I'm just struggling a little bit, okay? The word is ship, ship. Now I'm not talking about a, like an ocean vessel. Ship is not a noun, it's a verb and you use it to express your approval of a relationship. So like, I could say, I ship Scott and Janelle. That means like, Scott and Janelle Applegate, I approve 
of their relationship. I like it. You can also do it for like potential relationships. Like if there's two people that you think would be a really good match, you ship them. How am I doing, Audrey? Yes? I think I've mastered this one. I think I've mastered this one. So this is a lot of fun, learning the teenage lingo. But my kids, they, they think it's hilarious. They're like, mom, you're so out of touch. You're so lame. You don't understand our culture. You don't get it. And they think it's really funny and they enjoy teaching me. But the thing is, sometimes the culture around us can view the church as being a little bit out of touch. We just don't understand the culture. We're a little bit irrelevant. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Today is the last message in a series that we've been doing called Rediscovering Church. And today we're going to talk about the church as still relevant. Today in our culture, the church is relevant. And we're going to talk about how we can participate with God in his kingdom work of building the church. So that's where we're headed. But before we go any further, will you just take a minute and pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for this church, for this local church that's part of your big C church. What a privilege and an honor and a joy it is to partner with you in the work that you're doing in the world. God, this morning, as we look at this, as we talk about the church and the way that the church is still relevant, I just pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to the truth in your scriptures, to your love, to your relevancy, and to the way that we can walk in such a way that other people are drawn to you. Help me to just get out of the way and you to be the teacher Move our hearts, move us towards you and towards others. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if we're going to talk about the church being relevant today, I think it's really important that we understand where it all started, where it all began. So if you are familiar with the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and 2 is like a great brief summary of the beginning of the church. So Jesus, he was, he was crucified, and then he came back to life. And for the next 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the apostles, to large groups of people, up to 500 people at a time, um, encountered Jesus. He did things like eat with them and talk with them. And in the first chapter of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, listen, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem until the Father brings the spirit that he's promised you. And he tells them, you're going you're gonna to experience the spirit, and then you are going to go, and you're going to bear witness about me everywhere, starting here and moving out into all of the world. And so the apostles did exactly that. They stayed in Jerusalem. Jesus ascended back to the Father. And then about a week and a half after he ascended back to the Father, the, the apostles are in Jerusalem, and it was a celebration. It was a Jewish festival. We call it Pentecost, but this is a uh, celebration of the early harvest. So what would happen, this was a pilgrimage. So what would happen is Jewish people who had ended up all over the known region because of the exile that happened like 600 years previous to Jesus's life, there were Jewish people and converts to Judaism living all over the known world. And many of them would travel back to Jerusalem for this festival. So very strategic on the part of Jesus saying, hey guys, you're going to hang out here. I'm going to do something new. 
And all of these people from all these different cultures are going to witness it and be impacted by it. And sure enough, what happened is God pours out his spirit on the apostles and they begin telling the story of Jesus and all of these Jews from all of these different cultures speaking different languages hear the story of Jesus in their own language and their hearts were moved. Peter stands up then, the, the apostle Peter stands up, he gives the first sermon and he tells all of these people about Jesus and we're told in the scripture that their hearts were pierced, many of their hearts were pierced and they put their faith in Jesus and they were baptized. And then in Acts 2.42, we're told that they joined with all the believers and they studied the apostles' teaching. They shared their lives together. They took the Lord's Supper together. They prayed together. And this was the beginning of the early church. God used this small group of ancient Jewish followers of Jesus to move the gospel forward and outward, and there's absolutely no doubt that the gospel has completely changed the trajectory of our world. It's fascinating to go back and study church history and really even just world history because what you will find is that the things that we hold dear, the way that we value and love children and women, providing for medical care, hospitals, education, caring for the weak and the poor and the marginalized, contributions in all areas, literature, art, science, Christians have been at the forefront throughout the ages leading the way in those things. You can look around our culture today, look at our hospitals. What are the hospitals? What are the names of our hospitals? We have St. Luke's, Lutheran, St. Joe's, right? Because Christians are the ones who are like, hey, we need to care for the weak and the sick. In ancient culture at Jesus' time, people who were weak or sick, they, they were of no value. They were pressed out into the sidelines. They were completely marginalized. But it's followers of Jesus understanding people as being inherently worthy and having dignity because they're image bearers of God who are like, no, we need to care for the weak and the poor and the marginalized. Same with our schools. Most of our Ivy League schools, Yale, Princeton, Harvard, they were established by Christians for the purpose of training clergy. So the mark of the gospel and the way that the gospel has transformed our culture is all around us, and that's true. Also, today, globally, Christianity is on the rise. In the global south, Christianity is exploding. Lives are being transformed. Communities are being transformed. One of my favorite stories of community transformation that I've heard in the recent past was actually from a man named Bob Goff. I was at a, a leadership conference. This was probably close to a decade ago. And Bob Goff was one of the speakers. Bob Goff is a lawyer. That's what he does for his living. But he's also an author. And he's done a ton of work in Uganda. He's actually the honorary ambassador to Uganda. And in Uganda, there is, even though there is a lot of Christian influence and it's growing more so as the years go on in Uganda, there's also a lot of um, witchcraft that still happens there. 
uh, there's witch doctors that perform unbelievable ceremonies, really, really disturbing. They abduct children, uh, sometimes sacrifice children. There's a lot of child mutilation that happens because the witch doctors believe that this is how they can bring good fortune and healing. And, and most of these witch doctors are actually very uneducated. Most of them cannot read or write. And because they are so feared, no witch doctor had ever been brought to trial and prosecuted. But then a little boy, he was eight years old, and he uh, was abducted by a witch doctor, a man named Kabi. He was mutilated and left to die, but he didn't die. He survived, and Bob Goff gets a phone call saying like, hey, we, this child survived. He has identified the witch doctor that abducted him. Would you bring him to trial? This had never been done before. And Bob Goff was like, yes. They found a judge willing to hear the case. He successfully prosecuted this man, Kabi. He describes him as the most wicked person he had ever been in contact with. He said, just looking at his eyes and his countenance, it, he was just a bad, bad guy. So he prosecutes him. He's convicted. He gets put away in death row, basically. He's in this high-security prison in Uganda with 3,000 other bad, bad guys. And Bob's feeling pretty good, right? Like, he's built a relationship with Charlie, the little boy who was abducted. He's put away this super bad guy. But then Jesus starts to tap on his heart and is like, I, I want you to get to know Kabi, the super evil child mutilating witch doctor. And so Bob prays and wrestles through it, and then he takes a chance. And he goes to the prison where Kabi is waiting on death row, and he starts to build a relationship with him and hear his story. And Kabi, the witch doctor, puts his faith in Jesus, preaches the gospel to the other 3,000 inmates on death row, many of whom also come to put their faith in Jesus. And then because of Bob's relationship with Kabi, he learns about this culture of witchcraft and these witch doctors and what they're facing. And so Bob has started a school in Uganda that educates witch doctors, teaches them about the love of Jesus, teaches them to read. And the communities in Uganda that were under so much fear because of these witch doctors are being transformed because of the gospel, because the church is relevant and the church changes lives because Jesus changes lives. And that's true. But what's also true is that here in America, in our culture, the influence of the church as an institution is declining. A decade ago, 75% of Americans identified as Christians. And a decade ago, 16% of Americans identified as either atheist, agnostic, or just a person of no faith. And those numbers are, are flip-flopping. Today, about 63% of Americans still identify as Christians, which is still, a, you know, a majority. However, many of those are Christian in name only, not people who are attending and actively um, part of a church following Jesus. And the number of people that identify as atheist or agnostic or a person of no faith is almost at 30%. We're getting close to a third of Americans falling into that category. And that can be discouraging. But I believe that we have an opportunity to step into our calling, to recognize and utilize our influence in the world around us. Because here's the thing, the church will always be relevant because Jesus is relevant 
all the time, across time, culture, language, social status, political affiliation, it doesn't matter the category. Jesus is always relevant, and the gospel is always good news for all people all the time. And because Jesus has chosen to make himself known through his church, the church is the steward of the gospel. And because of that, the church is relevant. The church can help people find answers that they're desperately longing for. I don't know a single person who doesn't long for significance, who doesn't want their life to matter, who's not looking for security. I don't know anybody who doesn't need hope to face the hard things that happen in life and the certainty of death. And the church has those answers. The church has the hope that people need because we can point people to Jesus where all hope is found, right? This is important, I think. If we go back to the very beginning of this series, the first message that Scott taught was about what the church is. And the church is not a building, right? The church is made up of the people of God. The church is a community of people who are gathered around the crucified, risen Jesus, empowered by his spirit in order to bear witness to the reality that the kingdom of God is here, that hope is real and can be found in Jesus. That's who the church is. It's not a building. And that means that I'm the church and you're the church. That means that we have an unbelievable opportunity to help people experience the good news of the gospel and the transformative power of Jesus in their lives. So even though the church as an institution is declining in influence right now in our current culture, the church as the people of God has never been better positioned to impact the culture around us. So how are we gonna do this? How do we, as the church, call our culture to Jesus and stand up as relevant in this time, in this place, where we're at right now. There's a few things that we need to do, and I think it really begins with recognizing that each one of us have a part to play. In Romans 12, verse 4 through 6, Paul says, just as there are many parts to our bodies, so it is with Christ's body. We are all part of it, and it takes every one of us to make it complete. For we each have different work to do, so we belong to each other, and each needs all the others. God has given each of us the ability to do certain things well. Did you hear that? We each have different work to do, and God has given each of us the ability to do certain things well. We all have a part to play. A couple of months ago, at the beginning of the year, I had the privilege of going to the Dominican Republic with the Novation mission trip. And while I've been on the, the mission trip several times before this year, this past trip was really unique because Kiko, who's our missionary partner, is with a new organization called Handfuls of Hope. So this trip was new in that we had never worked with Handfuls of Hope before. Um, and Handfuls of Hope is an incredible organization. The man who started it, his name is Don, and he's probably 70 years old. He lives in New Jersey. He'd been to the Dominican Republic multiple times and saw a real need 
to educate children, to provide a place for people, no matter whether they had a birth certificate or not, whether they were able to pay for education or not, he saw this need to educate children, and in doing so, to be able to reach their families. So they have schools that have a church that meets there. They have multiple different sports programs where kids who don't have any um, strong adult figure in their lives to lead them and love them, they can be coached by these men and women who love Jesus and teach them the sports that they're playing, but also teach them about Jesus and about their value. They're doing all kinds of amazing things. And Don was just a guy who saw a need and stepped into it. He had different work to do and he played a part. And while we were at Handfuls of Hope, we were at their school, we were actually painting their basketball court, and it was lunchtime, so we had taken a break, we were sitting at these picnic tables, eating lunch, and Don was just chatting with a couple of people. And I wasn't really even part of the conversation, I was just listening. And Don said to the people that he was talking to, he said, there's a spot for you. We need you, whoever you are, Whatever you're excited about, whatever kind of personality you have, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. There's a spot for you. And that just stuck in my head. I haven't forgotten it. I've thought about it multiple times since he said it. And I want to say that to you this morning. There's a spot for you. We need you. We need every one of us to step in to who God called you to be, to do the work that he has for you to do, because God has gifted all of us differently. We all have a part to play. Secondly, we need to remember how Jesus called us to operate in the world. I want to read you these verses. This is out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. We're going to read them and then we're going to talk about them. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Now, where this passage that we just read is situated in the Gospel of Matthew, the author Put it in the Sermon on the Mount. So we have this long chapters, five, six, and seven in Matthew are what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And probably some of the most famous lines of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount start at the beginning of chapter five. And it's the words where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are weak, blessed are those who long for righteousness. If you're familiar with that, that passage, that's one of the most famous passages of Jesus And what's interesting is that in that passage, Jesus is almost setting up like a dichotomy between two different kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the world that seeks after status and recognition and power. And Jesus is like, but let me tell you who's actually blessed. It's the people who live in the upside down kingdom, the people who evaluate what's happening in the world and they're willing to grieve with those who are grieving, the people who make themselves weak right? It's like this upside down kingdom. And so then this passage we just read about salt and light, it comes right after that. If we're living as Jesus calls us to live in the upside down kingdom, we will be salt and light in the world around us. Now let's 
Think about salt for a minute. When Jesus was saying these these words to the people who were listening, what they first would have thought of when Jesus compared them to salt would have been preservation, right? Because they didn't have a refrigeration system. So their food depended on their ability to be able to hold off decay. So they would get in there, catch a fish, and they would cure the fish, right, with salt. They would dry it, and they would salt it, and it would put off decay. It would allow the meat to be fresh for a longer period of time. So that's certainly part of what we're called to do in the world around us. We hold off decay. We preserve the goodness and the presence of Jesus in the world around us. That's definitely true. But salt was not only used as a preservative. There's actually a lot of different elements to salt that are applicable to this, but I just want to highlight one more. Salt was also used as a flavor enhancer. Now, a couple of years ago, I started really enjoying cooking. And I have taken a couple of cooking classes, uh, just because it's fun for me. And in one of the cooking classes that I took, we had an entire lesson about salt. And at the beginning of the lesson, the teacher said, listen, when you properly salt your food, it's not gonna be salty. Salt makes food taste more like itself. So when you salt your chicken, it tastes more like chicken. When you salt your spaghetti sauce or your curry, you elevate the, the flavors that are already inherent to the ingredients that you put into your dish, but you elevate them. You call attention to them. And I thought as she was talking about that, I was thinking about this verse and I was like, what a beautiful illustration because that's what Jesus does in our life, right? When we begin following Jesus, when our life is transformed by Jesus, we don't become less of ourselves. We become more of ourselves. We become more human. We become more of who God actually created us to be because we're leaning into his transforming, seasoning, life-giving, flavor-producing power in our life. And then when we go out into the world as the body of Christ, as the church, we have the opportunity to do the same thing in the lives of people around us. We can call up what is best in them. We can elevate them. And through our lives, other people can experience the love and the power of Jesus. But that's not the only thing that Jesus compares us to. He also says that we're to be light in the world around us. Now, I don't know about, well, how many people have ever done the Cave of the Winds tour? Okay, there's like a a good number of people who have done it. It's pretty crazy because the Cave of the Winds, it's in Colorado Springs, it's an actual cave and you can go through the tour. And there's one point on the tour where the tour guide will say, okay, I'm gonna turn off the lamp so that you can experience total darkness. Because we don't experience total darkness today, right? Like we've got the blue light from our phones, the street lamps, even in the mountains, you've got the stars and the moon. So it's rare that we're in complete darkness. But we took our kids on that tour many years ago now, but we were in there and the lights turned off and it's pretty disconcerting. Like true and utter darkness is pretty uncomfortable. All your other senses struggle to like find their equilibrium. And I was just remember being like, just don't move, just don't move, don't move. The lights will come on soon. And it was only maybe 10 seconds that she had that lamp off. And as soon as she turned the lamp back on, immediately everybody's eyes are drawn to the lamp. We're like, okay, that, there we go. There's the light. That's where we're going. And then within just a few seconds, the light actually enabled us to see what was around us. We could see the stalactites and the stalagmites and clarity. We started having some clarity around where we were and, you know, getting back to our our sense of equilibrium. 
That's what light does in the world. We draw people to us, we show the way, we help people see, not because of us, but because of Jesus. He does that through us because we are the church and the church is relevant. People need us to show up in our lives as the church, as the body of Christ. Last but not least, I think we, as followers of Jesus, need to restore our hope for the church. Sometimes, I think what can happen in a, in a cultural context like ours, where the church as an institution has lost some of its influence, sometimes Christians can start getting kind of like discouraged and having a little bit of a like, oh, woe is us, like, the, the culture's just so bad and the culture's not listening and the church doesn't have any influence and can start feeling like really like down and out. And what that causes us to do is to like bunker in. It's like, all right, like circle the wagons. Everybody just like bear down here because it's bad out there. And that's like the exact opposite of what Jesus wants us to do. That is the exact opposite of the way that the church grows in influence. We can't circle the wagons and bunker down. Instead, we need to have hope for the future of the church because here's the thing. I'm not in charge of building the church and neither are you. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. He's going to build his church. I've heard Scott say this many times up here, that if a man can predict his own death and his resurrection and then he does it, I'm with him. Like, why would, if he, if he did that, why would we doubt anything that he says? We don't need to. He will build his church. And not only that, but we know how the story ends, right? Jesus has the final victory. Paul in Philippians 2 is talking about Jesus, and he says, look, he's been given the name above every other name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That's not maybe, that's not what we're hoping for best case scenario. That's where the story ends. Jesus has the final victory. So we do not need to feel sorry for the church or worry about the church. No, we need to jump in. We are invited to participate with God. He doesn't need us. He said he'll build his church, whether you are involved and whether I'm involved, he's going to build his church. But he has given us an incredible invitation to join with him in the work that he is doing in the world. And I want to be a part of it. Listen to Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the church. And listen to what he says. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. And by his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who rules over God's house, that's the church, that's us, let us go right in to the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, that's being salt and light. 
And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. We've never been closer to the day of his return. Today, we're the closest we've ever been, and that's going to be true every single day going forward. So let's jump in. Let's participate with Jesus and the work that he's doing in the world because the church is relevant. You and I are the church. Everywhere that we go, the church has influence. In your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in your classrooms, with your families, with your friends. If you're there, the church is there. And the church's job has always been to just point people to Jesus, to the one who will never disappoint us. That's always been the job of the church. So let's be empowered to walk in that, to do that. This is a great opportunity that we have. As we're getting ready to close, I want to do something. I want to ask you a question. If you are following Jesus today because of the influence of somebody else on your life, a parent, a coach, a friend, somebody who loved you or sacrificed for you in such a way that you experienced Jesus, will you stand up? And if you're in this room today, you attended church this morning because somebody brought you, because somebody invited you, and you're here because of an invitation, will you stand up? Sorry, look around this room. Look to your right and to your left. The church is relevant. You are here today because somebody cared enough about you to tell you about Jesus, to be the church in your life. I want people to be standing up in a room like this today because of you. I want you to enjoy the blessing of being the church in the world where God has placed you. So let's not back down. Let's not be shy or ashamed or discouraged because Jesus is king. He is building his church and this is evidence of that right here. God, what a beautiful, beautiful picture. We are about to end today's service in the best way we possibly could. We are going to celebrate the way that the church is relevant because we have people getting baptized whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. And as a church family, we are going to witness that and celebrate that today. So we're going to go back into worship. If you're getting baptized, it's almost time. Family, church family, I just, I love you all. And I am so encouraged by all of us together. I'm encouraged by what God's doing in the world around us. And I believe that we can step into our callings that Jesus wants to use each of us to bring more people into his kingdom. As we go back into worship, let's just pray together. Jesus, you are so good. Standing in this room and looking at the lives who have been changed by people who just follow after you and share the good news with others is overwhelming. I'm so confident in who you are and in what you're doing in the world. And Jesus, thank you for inviting us to participate with you. Thank you for allowing us to experience the goodness of your presence and of your power. And I pray that this group of people would step out into our lives outside of this building, walking in all the power and the confidence of your spirit, knowing that you will do the good work you intend to do 
in the world around us. All praise and honor is yours, Jesus. In your name, amen. Let's just sing and worship for a minute. This morning we're doing water baptism. If you weren't here last week, I taught on why do we do baptism. So if you didn't have a chance to to learn about that, you can go back and watch that message. But baptism is an identification 
with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he said to the disciples, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them all the things that I've taught you. That's what the church has been doing. We've been doing it for 2,000 years. As imperfect as the church is, uh, this act of water baptism, a demonstration, a public demonstration, is sacred. Sacred. There's nothing magical about the water. It's what's going on in the, the heart of someone that is declaring their discipleship to Jesus. So why don't you have a seat so you can you can see and the first person that's getting baptized is Gavin Parks. And he's yeah. This is mom and dad, Adam and Jess. Gavin, do you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Do you choose to follow him all the days of your life? baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We pray. We pray for him. God, I thank you for Gavin. Thank you for creating him, putting him together, and putting a path before him. I pray that he would see it and follow it and choose your ways. And God, do wonderful things through him. And bless your people and and all the earth through him. God, thank you for him. Amen. Amen. Mike. Next person being baptized is Mike Graham. Families here on the front row, Christy, Max, and Christian. We love you, my brother. More importantly, the Lord loves you deeply, and I know you've embraced that. Mike, do you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? I do. You're going to follow him all the days of your life. Because of the confession of your faith, Mike Graham, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for Mike and his family. I thank you for being his healer, spiritually, emotionally, in every way, God. Bless and give him strength. You're a God who endures with us. Help him to endure and to just keep his eyes on you. And on you, Lord Jesus, we, your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
let's just stand together. Just worship a little bit more. So grateful for these people that we baptized today. Just for God, just amazing grace over us. asking when we're going to do baptism again when you're ready we'll do it anytime like it's it's what jesus told us to do and uh so we'll probably do one in may or june or both so stay tuned for that father i pray the blessings of heaven that are already ours because of christ jesus you shared everything that's yours with us you have not held back anything. It's overwhelming. We want to be like you. We want to be generous people with our lives. Be the church. May God bless you as his salt and light in this earth. A fresh set of eyes on calling on your life as his disciple. In Jesus' name, amen.